Uh, yesterday, before the uh, rain and all this stuff started coming in, and for whatever reason, it, it created in me uh, well, it, it created in me a special sense that the kids needed to be outside the house before the weather got too bad. Um, and and I, I, I followed that, 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 that call, that prompting, and I got them dressed warmly. We went out into the garage, and man, I let them play outside, and Bryce is riding his bike, and it's, you know, watch how fast I go, and watch me slide, and watch me jump, and I just kept thinking, don't let me watch you crash. And so he's doing all this stuff, and Graham is just, you know, over there acting like he knows how to work the chainsaw, which I, I recognize needs to be more secure. Certain things in our garage are not child-friendly. Okay, let me take that back. Most things in our garage are not child-friendly. And so it, it finally came to the point where I had to, had to lower the garage a little bit. I backed both the cars out, and the kids are just, you know, playing with toys out there and, and, and tools. I should have thought about this. Now that I'm saying this, it makes me sound like a, a lot worse parent than I actually am. But anyways, we're out there, we're doing this stuff, and at some point in the whole process, I looked over in the corner, and, and many of you know that Valerie and I moved in our, into our house uh, last year at Easter time, and, and so we still have boxes that aren't unpacked, or I guess I should say, I still have boxes that aren't unpacked. She hit the ground running, she unpacked uh, every box two or three times, and I just kind of rearrange boxes, you know, I'd open it up, look in it, be like, not what I need right now, stack it in the corner. Where is that stuff I need, though? And I move to that next box and open it up. I'm like, where did that corner go? And eventually, I've got all corners occupied with boxes that I don't necessarily need the stuff that's in them. And so yesterday, for whatever reason, I look over in the corner of the garage, and I've got these three boxes staring at me. Now, not three boxes neatly uh, positioned on the floor, but these are the boxes that I've opened at some point in another and put one in the bottom. And I said, well, I don't need that stuff. And so I opened the next box and said, man, I don't need that stuff. I stacked it up. So now I've got three boxes, you know, well over six feet high. And I'm staring at them. And I'm like, you're not going to intimidate me. I'm going to unpack you. This is going to be a peaceful thing. I'm going to find stuff in you that's not useful for me. And I'm going to begin to ask myself, why in the world did I pack you up in a storage facility in Fort Worth, Texas, back in, well, when was that? Back in 2007 unload you from that storage facility, move you to a house in Fort Worth, move you from that house in Fort Worth to a rental house in Greenville and a rental house in Greenville to a permanent home in Greenville, Texas. Why in the world did I do that to you? Why would you let me? I thought you were my knickknacks. I thought you were my baby pictures and all this good stuff. Turns out, no. And so I'm over there and I'm, I'm, I'm opening these boxes and I'm digging through and I find stuff that's, that was Valerie's when she taught uh, at, at Everman Junior High and stuff that she taught when she worked for Fort Worth ISD and I dig a little further and I find the encyclopedia of guitar chords, which certainly I, I had set out and I was going to you know, know and incorporate and Eric Clapton was going to call me. We were going to tour together. It was going to be great. None of these things happened. I found a, a, a folder. When I was in college, I recognized that I was, well, let's just say not organized. And so I, I started putting all my syllabi and my class assignments in this plastic folder that I carry with me everywhere. And apparently, I, I, I carried it with me well, for like a decade now. And so uh, I opened this thing up, and, and inside there are, are Spanish tests, and it's you know, you know, subjunctive and all this stuff. And I'm just like, I knew that, well, test scores at the top. I, I studied, I was responsible for this at one point in time. Probably should have known it. And I found all kinds of stuff. I found letters 
I served as a summer missionary when I was in college. I was in Budapest, Hungary. And I found all the correspondence that Valerie and I had written back and forth when we were dating. And, and she would write me these letters, and I would write her back a postcard. And, and she was much better at I am for a lot, a lot of things. And so I found all these things, and at, at the bottom of it, I found this photo album. You know, photo albums are, are, are good things and bad things, right? And, and some of the bad things in there I'm flipping through in this particular summer when I was in Budapest. I didn't know the vocabulary for a haircut, and I, and I knew I did not want my head shaved. And so I went without. And so for three months or so, I, I went without cutting my hair, and it was already quite long when I left. And I thought about showing you guys a picture of it this morning, but I don't want the embarrassment. I don't want to put that in Justin's hand, and so I didn't. But my hair got down to my shoulders. I mean, it was, it was not pretty. Or maybe it was, it was too pretty, and that was part of the problem. <laughs> when a man walks into a store and he says, can you show me your hair products? It's just this conversation has something wrong with it, right? I go into the shower with three bottles of conditioner and then spend the whole time looking at them thinking, which one do I start with? How does this work? Is it leave in? Is it take out? Is it rinse out? That's too many things. I needed a haircut. But I'm looking through these things, and it's, it's prompting remembrance. Memories are, are powerful things for us. Now, when you're a child, and I remember being uh, younger, and my parents would tell me not to do something, that if I did that thing, that I was going to suffer consequences. And so when I went in, and I was in my mom's dining room, I had implanted in my mind that I didn't need to stand on the table because there were consequences for that type of action. I certainly didn't need to stand on it when she was anywhere near the dining room, but for whatever reason, that chandelier just had to be touched. It needed to be touched by me, and it needed to be touched often by me. And so those things in our memory lead us to reflect and remember things. Then we have positive memories. We have things that we love to look forward to. Those things in our past, those things in our future. Many of us work diligently with the memory and the recognition that vacation is coming soon. That winter is a certain period of time and it won't continue forever. Unless you're in Texas, in which case you're just going to ride the roller coaster. But as we look at this passage today, we recognize that Paul recognized the powerful role of memory in our lives. Now, you'll know if you've been walking through this letter with us that he has already reminded Timothy of of Paul, of Paul's own lineage. He has this lineage of faith. He reminded Timothy of his family lineage of faith that started in his grandmother, went to his mother, and now resides in him. But the, the pinnacle of all remembrance, the height of all the callings of memory, is when Paul instructs Timothy to remember Jesus. And that's what we're going to reflect on today as we read these verses. We're going to reflect on what it is to remember Jesus. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 8 and reading through verse 13, Paul writes, and he says these things, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. 
If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. But if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, it's interesting that as Paul opens up this passage, the only command in this verse comes from the first word, remember. Paul tells Timothy that he is to remember Jesus Christ. Now, as I was out there in my garage yesterday and digging through things, all these things came flooding back to me. All the, the, the memories from college, the memories from childhood, I was remembering a lot of things. I found one of Valerie's uh, photo albums from, from when she was a little girl. She was remembering ski trips. She was remembering her mom and her dad, and there were pictures of their honeymoon, and all of these things led us on all these different trips of memory. But the central focus that Paul calls Timothy to is a remembrance of Jesus. Now, what does that look like? If I were to come to you and say, say, friend, you need to remember Jesus, what would that, what would that prompt in your mind? What does that conjure up for you? How does that affect you? You see, for some of us, surely you're going to think back to the, the moment of your salvation. Somebody engaged you with the gospel story. You surrendered your, your life. You saw yourself as sinful. You saw all of these things stripped bare. You saw reality for the first time. And that, for you, is what you're going to be engaged in when you surrender to the command of, remember Jesus. And for others of you, you're going to uh, remember a baptism, and this may be more traumatic for some than others. It's more traumatic for me than others. But Paul isn't talking about just thinking about something pleasing and then passing on and living your life. See, tied to this idea of remember Jesus is this progressive and continuous nature of it. And so it would be as if I walked up to automatic gas and I went into Kelly's office and I said, Kelly, remember Jesus. And, and, and I leave his office and I go back home and I call him and say, Kelly, are, are you still remembering Jesus? And he says, yeah, I'm still remembering Jesus. And I, and I wake up the next morning and I say, where's my phone, Valerie? I need to call Kelly. And I call him and I say, Kelly, are you still remembering Jesus? He says, yeah, I'm still remembering Jesus. You see, it is this continuous thing that should permeate every area, every moment of our lives. There should not be one moment that we do not take hostage to the permanence and the immediacy of remembering Jesus. And it shapes everything. It shapes absolutely everything. You see, it's not just this, this whimsical idea. It's not just this, this flight of fancy, but it is absolutely grounded in the necessity of our faith and how it is affected when we engage in remembering Jesus. Now, Paul wants to make sure that we're not just lost in this very notional idea of what it is to remember Jesus or of who exactly he is, and so he grounds it in some concretes. Paul writes, and the first thing he says about him, he says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. See, Paul doesn't want us just to engage this reflection upon Jesus and who he is. He doesn't want us just to be driven to live better lives because we're so impacted by the moral standard that Jesus represented as he lived life on earth. 
See, if you read through the New Testament and you, you read across Jesus, you're like, man, he is such a, a moral teacher. He's such an engaging guy. He, he cares for the poor, as we just sang about. If that's all it is for you, then you follow somebody who's really not all that worthy of following. Because the central point of his life would be a lie. But Paul writes, he says, remember Jesus risen from the dead. Now Paul is echoing what he's already written to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, Paul discusses his gospel. And he says, for I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. So Paul says, look, I I set this out, and this is the most important thing I gave to you. And this is the most important thing I ever received. That Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. That he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the Scriptures. Paul lets us know that the the, the first of these two pillars that we must solidifying our minds with this understanding of Jesus is that he is risen from the dead. Now look at this and think about this for a second. Paul doesn't simply make the point that Christ raised from the dead. He's not making the point that that Jesus died on the cross and somebody came along and through extraordinary measures was able to revive him as if Jesus had swooned on the cross, as if he had died temporarily. And some first century doctor came in and said, not on my watch. And he's, he's pumping on his chest and he's administering CPR and he brings him back to life. And everybody says, oh, that was a close one. We almost lost Jesus. No. You see, if that's all it is, then, then he would be subject to die again. But the way that Paul writes it, he gives us the indication that he was risen in the past and he is raised still. Christ sits in resurrected glory at the right hand of Father, and he is reigning still. And this radically affects the way that we live when we remember a Christ who not only died, but we remember a Christ who was raised and is risen still. He founds it in another way. He says, look, I want you to understand in some aspect when we we look at this, he says that it is the offspring of David. Now, why would Paul do this? You see, we've already seen in in the way that he has set up his name here in verse 8. He refers to him as as Jesus, his, his earthly, his given name. We've seen the divine movement and the raising him of the dead. And now we see this Christological aspect. We see Christ as Messiah. See, Christ isn't just a last name designation, but it is a title it would be like referring to somebody as, as, as doctor or as master. And we see here that Christ is Lord. He is the king. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He's the one, the prophet, when speaking to David so many years ago in 2 Samuel 7 in verses 12, 13, said these words about. Speaking to David, he said, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers... I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is an indication that that this line did not stop 
with David. We recognize that it continued with Solomon. It went on to others past him. And it finds its highest point. It finds its pinnacle in the perfection of Jesus in accordance with the Scriptures. Now Paul writes, and he, he brings all of this together. He said, we've got Jesus Christ. We have this man who came and he died and supernaturally God came alongside. He has raised him. He has risen still. And he is the Christ. He's the long-awaited one. He's the one which all the Old Testament testifies to. And Paul couches it and he says, this was in my gospel. This was the sum and substance of my teaching. And we find that Paul, Paul is very much in line with the same heart and methodology of Jesus. You remember that after the resurrection, Jesus appears on the road to Emmaus. You remember this? These two disciples are walking down the road, and, and Jesus shows up, and they don't recognize him. And he begins this, this exploratory conversation. He's talking, he, he's engaging them, and he's asking them questions. And they're, they're dejected to a certain degree. But he says this to them in verse 26 concerning himself. He says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Look what he does in verse 27. Christ displays to us a hermeneutic, which is a philosophy of interpretation. He says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see, Paul's gospel wasn't opposed to the Old Testament. Paul recognized that Jesus himself can be found in the Old Testament. He's found in the prophecies pointing to his Messiahship. He's found in the words of Isaiah pointing to his crucifixion, his humiliation. The sum and substance of Paul's gospel, of his communicating message, is that lives can be transformed when they encounter the Christ of the Bible. Now look what Paul says in verse 9. What's happening to Paul on the basis of his gospel? He says, for which I am suffering. For which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal. Paul looks at the gospel. He looks at the mandate that the gospel has on his life. I mean, this wasn't a, a guy that, that followed the easy course before him. This wasn't a guy that, that, when he was confronted with the truth of the gospel, said, you know what, I'll accept the life-changing aspects that salvation brings to me. I, I'm, I'm happy for those. I recognize that I'm a sinner. I recognize I need God's grace in my life. I recognize that I can't do any of this apart from myself. But the whole dying aspect, the whole surrendering aspect, I just don't think I can go there. So we don't find that in Paul at all. In fact, Paul says it is because of the gospel that he is suffering. Now the interesting thing in Paul's choice of words here, Paul says he is bound with chains as a criminal. This word means a worker of evil. The only other place in the New Testament where this word shows up is in Luke 23, 32. And, and, and the interesting pairing of that is, is Jesus between the two criminals. Jesus on the cross. He's got these two men that are dying a similar death on either side of him. And when Paul 
refers to the way of his imprisonment, when he refers to the weight of his imprisonment, he chooses to use this same designation. Now, this wasn't a word employed by the, by the Roman Empire to suggest somebody who engaged in just being a nuisance or somebody who engaged in petty theft. But man, this is the word that they reserved and they used for the most vile offenders. This is the word reserved for those that they were going to subject to the most vile treatment, to the harshest things that they could conjure in their minds. And this is how Paul was suffering. See, Paul heard the gospel. It radically transformed his life. Paul surrendered himself to the gospel. And he was stuck in a hole in a Roman prison counting down the days until he'd be executed. Now that's a depressing circumstance, is it not? I mean, there have been things in my life that have really gotten me down. They've really you know, made me kind of go through some, some dark days and, and made me just have a hard time smiling at people, but I've never been stuck in a dark, dank prison. I've never sat there with the, with the water dripping. I've never sat there and, and thought that any day now they're going to come get me and take me out and I'm going to die. But I would imagine, friends, that if I was in that situation, that I would have a hard time doing anything other than being completely destroyed day after day. I'd be struggling with depression. I'd be struggling with some of the decisions I'd made that had led me to that set of circumstances. But look at what Paul's word is on that. Paul recognizes his suffering. He recognizes his predicament. He says, I am bound with chains as a criminal. But he turns. He sees the fuller picture. He says, but the word of God is not bound. He says, this is my set of circumstances. This is my, the, the plight that I'm engaged in. But the word of God is not bound. Paul recognizes he's no fool. He recognizes that that he has led many to salvation. He recognizes that when people hear that he died, certain people are going to rejoice. They're going to say, finally, this well-wisher of Christianity, finally, this guy who's stirring up so much trouble in the Roman Empire has died, and things can go back to normal. But to them, to all of his critics, to his detractors, to all those who say that the weight of Christianity rests on Paul and on Paul alone, he stands boldly even in the midst of that dark, dank prison, and he proclaims that the word of God is not bound. You see, there are some of us that are so easily depressed, we're so easily saddened. We think back to the, to the moment prayer wasn't allowed in schools. We, we read the news and we see the Ten Commandments coming off the walls of courthouses. We read about the nativity not being able to be set up in front of, of public locations. And, and we look at that and we say, God, how can your gospel go forward? Surely the gospel it will be wrecked if we can't do these things, if we can't have prayer in school, if we can't have all of these things. Surely Christianity is coming to a complete and utter and abrupt end. But the testimony, the testimony is that the word of God is not bound, it is not hindered, it is not slowed down, it is not halted, it is not tripped up, it is not Slow because God's providence, his authority, and his reign will continue. I was thinking about this this week, and I've been reading for a couple of weeks now at, at night this uh, amazing work, and I, I recommend it to all of you. It's called The Insanity of God 
a story of faith and hope resurrected. And this guy is writing from the perspective that he's traveling the world, he's interviewing, and I think he said he interviewed uh, over 600 different individuals who are being persecuted, Christians who are being persecuted. Went to over 72 different countries interviewing these, these people, and he talked about one of the last trips he took, actually he's still taking trips, one of the last trips he took in the book. He's over in Asia, and he's trying to meet with these people, and he gets an email from this doctor in a different area of the world. And the guy says, you really need to come see me. Writes the doctor back and says, I, I have plans to early next fall. But I, I, I can't make it right now. I'm already engaged in these things. Doctor writes him back and says, you need to change your plans. You need to come see me. So he responds a little more aggressively. Thank you so much for your interest. Man, it excites me that you want me to come see you. But I've already committed and I need to follow through on these things. And so he leaves and he flies to... Uh, a country, and he goes to engage, and, and event after event is being canceled. Pastors are in prison. Pastors are sick. They're being followed too closely. He can't get in, and time and time again, all of these meetings he had set up for himself are failing. And so after about six or seven emails with this doctor the whole time saying, look, I can't come see you. You need to leave me alone. I'm going to come see you next time. You know, eventually, I'm sure he was tempted to write, if you keep this up, I'm not coming to your country. But eventually he had to write him back. He says, uh, it looks like everything fell through. And so, hey, still good? Love to come see you. You know, XOXOXO. So he flies to this country. He lands. This guy who presumes to be the doctor walks over to him. He starts talking to him. And he sees these five men standing near the runway. So he asked the doctor, he said, who are these guys over there? Doctor looks back over his shoulder, says, uh, they're not with me. We've got big problems. Because if you're not expecting them, I didn't bring them with me. You might want to see if you can get another ticket and get out of here. So the guy walks into the terminal. He goes in, and he is as quickly as possible trying to get his ticket changed. As quickly as possible trying to get out of this country before these five men, who he is fairly certain want to take his life, have an opportunity to do their worst. Men walk up and they start pulling on his jacket and he's trying to ignore them, trying to, to see past them. Eventually, one of, these men's, one of these men blurts out, we are followers of Christ. These men had gotten saved in a variety of countries and had found their way to the city and had found each other. And they'd been gathered in prayer late at night and about 1.30 in the morning they were disturbed in prayer and the Holy Spirit told them, go to the airport, one is coming to you to speak to you about persecution. So they asked him, said, are you that man? So he told them of his studies, he told them of the, of the things that they had learned and they told him the most remarkable stories of how each of them came to faith and I'd like to share a couple of those with you this morning. Reading from the book, he says, one of the five men told me he says, I dreamed about a blue book. I was driven, consumed really by the message of the dream. Look for this book, the dream said. Read this Bible. I began a secret search, but I could not find a book like that anywhere in my country. Then one day I walked into a Quranic bookshop and saw this sea of green books lining the walls. I noticed a book of a different color on the shelf in the back of the store, so I walked there and pulled out a thick blue volume to discover that it was a Bible. 
It was published in my own national language and I actually bought a Bible in the Islamic bookstore. I took it home and read it five times and that's how I have come to know Jesus. Another says, I dreamed about finding Jesus. But I didn't even know how or where to look. Then one day I was walking through the market when a man I had never seen before came up to me in the midst of a crowd and he said, the Holy Spirit told me to give you this book. And he handed me a Bible and disappeared into the crowd. I never saw him again. But I read the Bible he gave me three times from cover to cover. And that is how I've come to follow Jesus. Some of the most dark oppressive corners of this world. The word of God is going forward. The word of God is not bound. It's not held prisoner to our circumstance. It is not held prisoner to any laws or movements of government. The word of God goes forward still. That's how in the midst of Paul's circumstance he was able to rejoice And that's how in the midst of Paul's circumstance, he writes in verse 10, he says, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. See, in the midst of all this, Paul recognized that his suffering had purpose. This idea of endurance is to suffer and to stay. To suffer and to stay. To find yourself suffering for something and then not to do something to relieve it. Paul was in the midst of suffering. He was in the midst of of pouring out his life. And he chose to stay and endure that suffering. Look at the missionary zeal for Paul. He says, I endure everything so that others might come to know. The second half of verse 10, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. You see, it wasn't just enough for Paul that his message go forth to others. It wasn't just enough for Paul that that others have the gospel presented to them. But when we see this, when we read the way that Paul describes it here, he wants to see them persevere. He wants to see them remain until the end. And that's why he says, he doesn't just say so that they might get saved, but instead he writes that they may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul wants to see them ushered into glory. He wants to see them ushered into heaven. He wants to see their salvation continue. And that is what he is working for. And that is what he is enduring for. Let's look at these last few verses together. Reflecting on all of this. Reflecting seemingly on on this thought of remembrance. Paul either copies or pins this beautiful early Christian hymn. He says, if we die with him, we also live with him. Now, if you were here last Easter, we preached through a portion of of Romans 6. And this is more or less what Paul is referencing here. Listen to Romans 6, 8 through 11. Paul says, now if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul throws out this question. 
to all those who would read, to all those who would hear, and to us sitting here today. He asked this question, have you died with him? Have you died with him? Seeing this great testimony of Christ that Paul gives us in Romans chapter 6, he says, the death he died, he died to sin. And you'll remember that Paul in that reference is speaking of sin's authority over us. That when Christ came in and he, he set himself down, when he surrendered his life, when he died, he died to sin's authority, its claim over my life. He died so that sin might no longer have ownership over me, so that death might no longer reign in my body. And Christ, through Paul, asked the question, have you died with me? The question goes out, have you died with him? Have you found that point of unification with Christ? Have you surrendered your life? Have you found yourself being confronted with the truth of the gospel when you've got your sin and you clearly understand that if Christ doesn't move in you, you face eternity separated from him. That God will respect those wishes to the point where you will spend eternity suffering under the reality that you denied him. Eternity under the understanding that you refused him. You will suffer the consequences of your choice. Paul asked the question, have you died with him? And if you find your unification with Christ in the saving work, then Paul's testimony that if you have died with him, then you will live with him. This isn't pointing at some future reunion of of you and Christ in heaven, but this points to the reality that since the moment he moved in your life from salvation from today and carrying on forward for all eternity, that you will continue to live with him. Well, look at verse 12. He talks about living as a Christian. He says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. We recognize that as a Christian, suffering is going to come. That as a Christian, persecution is going to come. These are realities. These aren't things to be shirked. They're not necessarily evidence that we're making wrong choices in life. This is evidence that we are followers of the king. And Paul calls us into the same calling that he has surrendered himself to. Paul says in verse 10, he says, I endure everything. Verse 12, he says, if we endure. Are you enduring? If we were to examine the way you live your life, the way you engage in conversation with your friends, the vibrant testimony that you give forward of Jesus Christ, are you one who endures or one who compartmentalizes? Are you one who suffers or one who sets aside? Are you one who proclaims the king or makes excuses for him? Man, it's a difficult thing that as we come into conversation with our family members, man, that I, as I have lost family, as I encounter lost people on the street, as I encounter people in the bank or people that I want to do business with, I have a choice to make. Will my testimony as a follower of Christ lead me to a place of suffering or will I stay in a place of convenience? You see, the call in our lives is to put Christ and to put him foremost. This means that we aren't seeking to build up relationships so that we might interject Christ at some point where we build up enough courage. It means that we lead with Christ. 
We lead with Christ. Paul writes, he says, if we endure with him, we'll also reign with him. There's this eschatological end of times hope and this promise that if we are true followers, we will, in, will endure. And if the proof of our endurance will result in us reigning with him. But look at the negative side. He says, if we deny him, he will also deny us. In Matthew 10, we read these words. It says, whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. We recognize that we can't just choose to live it however we want to. You, you, you can't just have Jesus however you want to. There's only one way that you might have Jesus in your life, and that is full surrender. That is willful endurance. And for those that move to, to deny, to disown, to say that Jesus doesn't exist, he's no part of my life, and you stick out your hand and you say, I want nothing to do with Jesus. If that's the tenor, if that's the manner of your life, if that's the way that you live things, If, if the tenor of your life is that when you, as you live, that throughout your life and into the future, that you will continue to deny him, to keep him at arm's length, to accept none of his saving power, then, friend, he will deny you too. He will deny you too. The words we read in Matthew is that just as we have chosen to deny him, he too denies us. Just as we have turned our back on him, he too will turn his back on us. But lest we think that any mistake would lead us to, for a loss of salvation, we read in verse 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Probably the most prominent example of this is Peter. You'll remember at the Lord's Supper, Peter stands strong and he says, look, I'm willing to die for you. I'm gonna go to prison for you. And, and Jesus is just like, maybe we should just manage expectations a little bit. Maybe for you, just not talking would be a good idea. Somebody walks up, they ask you if you know the man, feign muteness. But instead in Peter, we see a, an example of one who demonstrated faithlessness. One who, when posed with a question and, and posed with an option to answer positively that yes, I know him. Yes, I have been his follower, and this is how you can follow him too. Instead, Peter chose the safer route and said, I, I don't know him. I want nothing to do with him. And if he was here today, I would be proclaiming with you, crucify him. Because that's what Peter did in his actions. So we recognize that, man, there are times in our lives when we, like Peter, respond faithlessly. that our lives aren't moving in accordance with the way God calls Christians to live. And this isn't an indication of a loss of salvation. This is an indication of a lack in perseverance. But what for the one who demonstrates faithlessness? We recognize that God's character does not change. We recognize that, that, that our wishy-washy response before God does not affect a change in his permanence. See, as we vacillate, we recognize that Christ remains 
faithful, that God remains faithful. It's this idea that his faithfulness will continue from now and all through time. And for what reason? It is because, as Paul says, for he cannot deny himself. In salvation, if you're truly saved, then you've been united with Christ. You've been joined with him and you've become part of, of this body of the church. He cannot deny that. But if that is where you are, if that is who you are, then you also cannot move to deny him. See, it all centers around remembering Jesus. Paul writes and he says that they are to remember Jesus. Raised from the dead, the offspring of David. Remember Jesus for whom Paul is suffering. Remember Jesus, the one who keeps the word of God from being bound. Remember Jesus who is saving all. Remember Jesus who will bring all into salvation. Remember Jesus whom we have died with. Remember Jesus whom we will live with. Remember Jesus for whom we endure and whom we will reign with. Remember Jesus and do not deny him. Lest we will face the consequences and be denied ourselves. Remember Jesus, that even in our moments of faithlessness, he remains faithful. Remember Jesus and the Father, moving in their permanence, for they cannot deny themselves. Let me pray for us.